I'll be reading Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, and the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, would you please join me as we pray? Father, we pray that you might shed your light abroad in this place. We pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might see you and we might see your kingdom in Christ. Father, we pray that your word would be alive and work in every heart in this room. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as chapter 12 in the book of Romans, that's where we've been, as it began, there was a very important statement that was made, and it was this, that when someone comes to understand the mercy of God that he expresses through his son Jesus Christ, when you become to understand that, everything gets transformed. Everything goes under a massive metamorphosis. And Paul has begun to sort of walk through what that looks like. We begin to understand that we're part of a family, a family of God, and that we have a unique purpose and a unique role, but also we have brothers and sisters that have unique gifts. He spoke about that, gifts that are given by grace. In turn, last week we looked at this new way we're called to love when you've been touched by the mercy of God. If the gospel is not changing your definition or your understanding of the way you ought to love, something's wrong. If you're still loving in the old way, 
And then he moves on to talk about our relationship with those that we would call brothers and sisters, but also those that we might call enemies by saying, I want you to withhold vengeance. And after finishing that, it's natural that he would then move to discussing the place of the government in the state. Because in Paul's view, the government in the state actually plays a role in the life of, uh, in, in respect to wrongdoing that leads us to restrain ourselves from executing judgment ourselves, wrath ourselves. But I have to imagine, as you heard that passage read, there were different feelings in the room. Um, when you hear statements like, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. If you're someone that has had basically a positive experience with the government and governing authorities, that it's basically worked uh, to, on your behalf, the system has worked for you, uh, the governing authorities and law enforcement have come to your aid at times that are very important, you're going to have a positive view, likely, of the passage. But if you're someone historically that has had an experience with governor, government where maybe uh, your people were enslaved or they were put in internment or maybe your organization was uh, targeted by the IRS or maybe you were uh, arrested and incarcerated unjustly, you're going to have different feelings as you hear this passage being read. And I think we just need to acknowledge how our experience shapes how we feel this passage come to us. But the Apostle Paul could understand both. He was someone that was raised in Rome and was a Roman citizen, and he had those advantages. Yet at the same time, he knew what it was like to suffer at the hands of a government as he was arrested unjustly as he was almost near flogged, and as best we know from church history, he was executed by Rome. It would only be six years after this letter was written that Nero, according to the Roman historian Tacitus, historian Tacitus, would basically say that Nero would use Christians as sport. He would put animal hides on them and let wild beasts ravage them. He would put them on crosses and light them up as night lamps which makes this passage all the more stunning, doesn't it? When you think about the circumstance in which it was written, a far more difficult and challenging circumstance than the one that we are in in America today. But it does raise questions about the responsibility of the government and the responsibility of Christians to the government. And that's where chapter 12 leads us for this evening. Yay, I get to preach on politics in Washington, D.C. <laughs> Y'all don't know anything about this stuff, right? You don't have strong opinions about this, right? I don't think so, right? This, this ought to be easy. Um, anyway, the Bible says that God instituted three things. He established three institutions, the family, the church, and the state. And it's through these three institutions he does different work, and they're not to be you know, confused together. The late theologian John Stott said, if you look throughout history, there are four ways typically that the church and the state have interacted. One is uh, where the state would seek to control the church, Rastinianism. Another would be that the church controls the state, that's the theocracy. A third would be that the church enjoys a favored status before the state and they make certain compromises to keep that status, 
Constantinianism. And the third would be what we might call a partnership, where both parties understand their roles and seek to encourage one another in that. I would say that's probably the closest of a biblical model that we have. But Paul tells us here in verse 3 and 4 that the government is God's servant for our good. God's servant for our good. Now, as he says God's servant, there's a few things we need to think about. One is, if you imagine a world without any law and order, anarchy, chaos, the wild, wild west, it's a bad world to live in. It's a good thing that God instituted the state and law and order to keep things accountable and to punish wrongdoing. Anybody that hasn't benefited from that, right, wouldn't question the legitimacy and the blessing of it. Yet he also makes a distinction, Paul, that they are God's servant. That is, they don't serve their own means and their own power and their own authority. And therein is some of their accountability. They're not to see themselves as wielding power just for the purpose of the state. In the 17th century, the Stuart kings sought to claim what was called the divine right of kings. And there was a pastor, Samuel Rutherford, that challenged that and said, listen, the king is not God's law. God's law is the king. That is the reigning power that all are to look for. And when the government steps outside of that role, history tells us of so many abuses that occur. I don't have to give you examples because we find them. Terrible abuses when the government works for its own power. But then he goes on to say as well that it's for our good that God has done this. That it's a good thing that God rewards right doing and punishes wrongdoing. So when law enforcement or government are working that way and doing a good work, they should be, content, uh, should be commended, not condemned. They should be commended because it's a good thing for justice to prevail. It's a good thing for wrongdoing to be punished. But this good also gives us another qualifying side, that it's to be done before God's morality and in light of God's morality. I sit on the uh, theological examining committee of our presbytery, over the region of our churches. And um, we had a candidate two weeks ago who they have to write theological papers, and he wrote his theological paper on uh, enhanced interrogation, the legitimacy of torture. And he was uh, interesting background. He is a retired lieutenant colonel of the Marines and was an associate professor at the Army Judge Advocates School. And I didn't know he had actually written a book on this. It's gotten a lot of acclaim. And in the room on our committee was two other Marines. Now, all of those guys had actually, in their training, been part of SEER, which some of you might know. It's, uh, let me see here, I have to read this. Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape. That's a place where they go for training, part of which includes going through um, simulated torture. And so these guys had experienced some level of torture. And it was fascinating to sit there and listen to their conversation. And where this lieutenant colonel was arguing that it's immoral to torture based on two reasons. The image of God in all people and love of neighbor. He'd say the image of God, you know, uh, prevents us from being able to harm someone. He said an interesting statement that while as a soldier... I can, can kill someone who's an enemy combatant. Once they become a prisoner, I cannot hurt them. 
I cannot hurt them because a prisoner is in the most vulnerable place. And so, you know, I know I've opened a new can of worms here, but the point is this, that, you know, as the government acts, they need to be held accountable according to God's good and God's morality. When the state acts for their own good, they cease to serve God. Now, is this all that God has to say about the role of the government? I've tried to make this principle and statement before. The Bible doesn't say all it has to say about a subject in one place. And we get into a lot of trouble when we go to just one passage and go, well, I guess this is all it means. If we had had time, I would have had us read Psalm 72. And I encourage you to read it this week. It is a psalm that was uh, sung on the inaugural day of kings of Israel when they came into office. And the song actually, and you can turn there if you want, the song actually reminds the kings of their duty. And these are some of the things that it says. One is care for the vulnerable. It's from Psalm 72. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak, and he saves the lives of the needy from oppression. In violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. So there we have the role in God's ideal government. They are have their eye out for those that are oppressed, those that are needy, those that are in need of justice, and they are swift to advocate for them. Uh, one of our former members in this church is, named John White is a Abraham Lincoln scholar, and he relayed to me the story that in 1864, a white widow of a fallen major, a major that had died in battle, saw that black widows were not receiving pension, whereas the white widows were. And these widows obviously had lost their husbands fighting in the war. And so she wrote a letter to Lincoln, and Lincoln swiftly acted upon it, called Charles Sumner to, to move and correct the problem. And it's probably no surprise, I wonder if that widow's letter figured into the second inaugural address where Lincoln said, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan. This was good governing. But also, leaders were called to be catalysts for unusual prosperity. Again, in Psalm 72, there's this interesting image. They say, may the, may, uh, as the king is inaugurated, may there be abundant prosperity. And then it says, may there be grain in waves of grain on top of mountains. Now, that's an odd thing to say, right? Anybody here like to climb mountains? You ever been on top of a mountain and went, wow, look at this orchard? right? Things don't grow up there. It's rock and stubble. And so what it's saying that God would bring unusual prosperity through our elected leaders. He would bless them that places that aren't blooming are blooming. And so here you have, you know, a more expanded view of what we look as the government. And what we're finding here is those polls that would say the government should only restrain evil or the government should be everybody's savior. And neither one of those can really be defended by scripture. We find there's a different thing that's presented. And it's something when those in government and those for the state work hard, they ought to be blessed to know that what they do is a noble work. Listen to the prophet Samuel. He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, when the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after rain. 
We live in a day of such high cynicism about those that work in government. And I, I will tell people when they ask me about this, the longer I've been in D.C., the less cynical I've become and the more sympathetic I am for those of you that work in government and state. I think it's an exceedingly hard thing to do. I mean, number one, you have to choose sides, right? You might not really be down with everything that your party upholds, but you've, you've got to, if you want to work, you've got to work somewhere. So right away, that's a hardship not to mention what you have to do day to day. It's a noble calling, and you should be encouraged that Scripture sees it that way. But that now leads us to Christian responsibility, the second point. And there's three things I want to say here. One is, this passage reminds us that we need to recognize that God rules over whoever rules. We need to recognize that God rules over whomever rules. Sometimes when someone is elected that we don't like, and maybe it, for you it was the former president or the current president, people would be tempted to say, well, you're not my president. I, I bet Christians in Rome were really tempted to do that. I mean, think about it. Caesar is ruling over them. But Paul says we don't say that. We're not allowed to say it. Why? Because to say it is to basically confess that God's asleep at the wheel, that God is not sovereign that God doesn't reign over what happens politically. It's to basically have a very secular, man-centered view of politics. Yet we find in the book of Daniel, the Most High rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This affirmation that, yes, even if you think things are going you know, down the toilet, God is reigning. And so with that understanding, Paul would say, let every person, every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Boy, it couldn't be any clearer. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, we'll get to the balancing clause of that in a moment, because I know a lot of questions pop in your mind. But we don't want to skate by that. You know... God is in control even if we don't believe and understand he is. Do you know who said that statement about the Most High uh, giving rulers their place? It was King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian tyrant. That's who said it. If you look at the Old Testament, God actually refers in Jeremiah to Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, a far worse ruler than this country has ever seen. Refers to him as my servant. Why? Because Nebuchadnezzar was serving him out of the right heart? No, because God was actually overruling what he was doing. When God allows someone who doesn't worship him into, into government and power, he doesn't forget about his own justice and purposes. And we don't understand what God will end up doing. Nebuchadnezzar made that confession because later God humbled him greatly and he became a true servant of God. And so in our minds, we don't know what God is doing. We don't see how the plan will unfold we're to neither doubt the rule of God or presume on that plan. He may give a nation a particular ruler to bless them. He may give a nation a particular ruler to bring them through trial and to judge them. But as God's people, we understand that living under him, we live under his blessing. He will take care of us. That gives us a place of witness. But of course, the question that's hanging in the room is, well, does God's sovereignty mean we sit in our hands? Does it mean passivity? Of course it doesn't mean passivity. The Lord Jesus Christ believed in God's sovereignty more than anybody else, but he was also an incredible advocate for the poor and oppressed. Right? It may be God is sovereign, we better go march. 
You know, whatever it is, but God's sovereignty doesn't mean passivity. It means trusting God while we act, believing God. And I'll tell you, there's a big difference between a group of people that are acting out of God's confidence and those that act out of panic and anxiety. Among Christians, I hear a lot of anxiety, a lot of panic. You might have concern, but I really encourage you not to have anxiety and, con- and fear. And as we act, there's many things we can do. Uh, one of our members, Rick Berry, uh, heads a, something called the Center for Christian Civics. And uh, he has had an interesting dialogue as he's gone around and met with people. And uh, Rick makes the comment, and I think it's true, that um, Christians in this country have unprecedented opportunity to not be passive as over against Christians all throughout history. I mean, these are some of the things that he had mentioned. Uh, We can vote. We can recall an election. We can direct a referendum. We can contact our elected official. We can petition, we can protest, we can participate in NGOs, we can participate in nonprofits. I'm not saying that makes everything better, but God has given us by his providence and common grace opportunity to act. God's sovereignty reigns over that as well. Well, Let's move to the second point here. The Christian's responsibility is also to honor God as far as God's word requires them to and as far as their conscience does. So this might be the balancing clause to the first thing I said. And this is, you know, hinted at in this passage where uh, Paul says the government is God's servant, and where they cease to serve him in explicit ways, Christians then might find themselves in a place of where they need to consider civil disobedience. Jesus, when someone came up to Jesus and said to him, see this coin, they were trying to trick him, Uh, it had Caesar on one side, right? And he said, give to God what is God, give to Caesar what is Caesar. By that, he was saying two things. He was talking about Christians fulfilling their obligation to government, but he was also limiting government in a day where the emperor thought he was God. He was limiting the scope of what government should do. In Acts 25, we have, you know, one of the classic passages. We understand, as God has instituted the family, the church, and the state, that the fall, sin, has affected all of it. And as Christians, our call is to push back the fall in whatever reign, whether it's in our family, whether it's in the church, and whatever vocation we have. In Acts 5.29, the apostles are before the ruling party of Israel, the Sanhedrin, the governing authority. And they said to them, you've got to stop preaching. And Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. This is a principle that Christians cling to, and it's one we see in the Old Testament as well. Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were called to bow down, they refused to do it. They disobey. The Hebrew midwives, when Pharaoh says, I want you to slay all the infant sons, civil disobedience. And you see it all throughout history, whether it's Bonhoeffer and the Nazi party, or whether it's Martin Luther King and civil rights movement. A place for Christians when they see that the government is contradicting the law of God, they then begin to consider what should my role be. And this is where we get into very important territory, and that is that that God's word might lead a particular Christian in one way and another Christian in another way. And the danger is when we believe that we need to judge motives of what someone has done. 
That's a, that's a dangerous thing, and it's something that I think uh, has become a great temptation in the day we're in right now. I don't know if some of you have been keeping up with um, the controversy uh, about Taylor subs in the city. Um, some of you may know, some of you don't know, but uh, Taylor Sub, if you go to their place, I think on H Street, it actually says more hoagies, less politics. So this is not, you know, something, that, uh, an organization that is explicitly tries to use their politics as far as I know. But uh, the owner decided that he would go to the White House and go to a small business administration meeting. And he said he went there, actually, to talk about diversity in the workplace and unemployment, but he had his picture taken with the current president. And when people saw that, they began to boycott Taylor Subs. And it was interesting who came to his defense. Slate magazine. If you read Slate, you know it's not a conservative magazine. It's a liberal progressive magazine. And they said, you know something? Is this getting a little crazy? You know, we're now going to judge people's motives because of they showed up somewhere? But we know, friends, it doesn't just happen out there. It happens in here, right? It happens in the Christian community. Someone goes to a march, someone goes to inaugural ball, someone takes a job with this administration, someone takes a job with this nonprofit, and there's this great temptation to go, oh, and begin to judge motives. And it's something that we're not called to do. It's guilty by association. You know, Jesus was accused of that because he hung out with tax collectors and those that liked to party. Christians resist making those assumptions about one another because we don't see into the heart and we don't see the whole picture. And someone could be at a particular place, not because they advocate everything, but for a particular reason. It's an important thing. And I want to make a plea to this congregation, whether it's on Facebook or Twitter or in our conversations, that we would labor, labor not to judge people's motives however they're employed, however they're doing that, uh, that we might respect people's consciences as they are led by the Word of God. The devil could really exploit and destroy a church over something like that. I see Christians divided all over the country about it. We owe each other a debt of love, as Paul would say in verses 8 through 10. And there's one more way that I think that we can help ourselves and that is seek to be more biblically shaped than culturally shaped. As Paul says, let no debt you know, stand but the love of one another, love of neighbor. That includes us and our neighbor. You know, it's interesting that he ties that in in this passage here and our commitment to our neighbor. He's talking about social relationships, not just state relationships. But I think one of the hidden forms of worldliness in the church today is uh, the way that we are more defined by cultural and political categories than we are scripture. For instance, you know, if I preach on pro-life and marriage between one man and one woman, for one group I'm biblical, for another group I'm being politically conservative. Yet if I speak on justice and oppression and racism, for one group I'm being biblical, but for another group I'm being politically liberal. I would make a case that all of it is biblical. But what is more concerning is a tendency we have, and all of us do it, I include myself, however you've been shaped, when you hear an ethical issue is your first impulse to go conservative or liberal. 
That's a sign of worldliness. If you're first impacted is, how does the kingdom of God think about this? How does the kingdom of God move it out? Because I can take you to passages in Scripture where you have both conservative values and quote-unquote liberal values side by side. Personal righteousness and social righteousness. And so we as believers need to work hard to make sure we're getting our ideas. And I again have sympathy for those of you that are having to work day in and day out. I know you need to use that language. And you, have, you can say, great, Glenn, am I going to walk in my office? Am my members going to talk to me about some issue and I'm going to refer to it in the biblical word instead of the word they're using? No. But we need to do that hard work of renewing our minds. But let me hit the last point, And that's verse 6 and 7, Christian's responsibility to pay what we owe. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. The Apostle Peter would say it this way, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Pretty challenging. And there he's just reflecting the teaching of Jesus who taught the same thing as I mentioned earlier. Uh, Christians don't pay their taxes when they like the person in government. I'm sure no one in Rome liked who was in power. But Paul says, I still, you still need to pay your taxes because God instituted them and you still have a loyalty to them. But you know what I think the harder thing to give than the money is respect, honor, That's the toughest thing to give, isn't it? It's easy to give money. You see, in the world, respect is conditional. I will respect you as long as I agree with you. And the more disagreeable you become, the less I will respect you. But in the kingdom of Christ, respect is unconditional. It's based on the fact that you were made in the image of God. No matter what you believe, no matter how you behave and live, I owe you fundamental respect because you are an image bearer in the name of God. And so that means that you and I can easily offer everybody respect, even if we disagree with them, because we understand them. And I think this day, is this, this in and of itself, if we did nothing, if this congregation just said from this day forward, whoever's in office, whoever's working for whoever, we are going to show our unconditional respect, it would be such a radical witness in this town. My prayer is that whoever comes through those doors, whatever party, no matter how notorious or infamous they are, that they would be greeted with one thing, Christian hospitality. That they would be greeted with warmth. They would be overwhelmed by the fact that they were treated kindly. Because that's the gospel, right? This is what God did. You and I were so far on the other side of the aisle, so to speak, right? I mean, like, we are way over there. And God comes to us, and he brings us into his kingdom. He brings us into his family and loves us. He shows us hospitality when we don't agree with anything that he does, and we're rebels against his rule. So how can any of us not show hospitality to someone that we disagree with. The last thing I'll say here is uh, there's help. By the way, you know, I was going to say, 
there's a recent example, it's getting a lot of traffic on Facebook and different places of the two Texas congressmen that have taken this road trip, right? Bipartisan road trip. And by that, you see how hungry and thirsty people are to see that, right? And the church needs to be a regular road trip in that way. You know, we need to be a place where people see that. But lastly, what can help us? Eternal perspective. Paul spends this last part saying, you know the time that the hours come, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. Cast off the works of darkness. Why is he talking about the return of Christ? Because if you believe God is really going to come and set up his kingdom, that the Messiah King is coming back, and today we're nearer to that day than any other day, how will it shape your view toward the state? A couple things to close. First of all, no matter who's in power, you'll realize that God's kingdom will come. I'll tell you, I feel such heavy-heartedness for those, and I understand the emotion. I really do. And I think we can weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, and we can weep even believing that God's going to come. I don't want to act like we just smile stoically. But for folks that have no belief in a kingdom coming or a God that's reigning, what a hopeless situation they face every time a new election occurs because their hope is just bound up in that. But Paul is saying that Christians, you know, your hope isn't primarily there. It ought to help us. Second of all, his near return makes all of us think, you know, I need to be, what if God came back in one in the middle of my conversations or my thoughts? Am I walking humbly and lovingly? I've said this before. You know, if we lose the fruit of the Spirit of gentleness, kindness, and patience, but hold on to our issue and ideas, we've lost. We've lost because God has called us to hold the fruit of the Spirit and our beliefs at the same time. And so, Roman 13 lays out a pretty mighty call to us, and especially one that's challenging for those of us that are here in Washington, D.C. It's not like the polls of the culture give us. It's a different way. It's the way of mercy. And we have all the reason to hope because God's going to get it done. He lives in you and me. All of a sudden, I'm singing Lion King, right? He lives in you and me. But his grace and mercy lives in us. So let's pray that God will give us the grace to walk with his kingdom. Father, we thank you. Uh, for this different sort of kingdom that you put before us that challenges us so much. I know it challenges me. Lord, I pray that you would help us to uh, walk in faith and be lights in this city at this time. In Christ's name, amen.